Hello, Sarah. Hi. I have a story to tell you. Good. Okay. So my best friend, Megan, best friend Megan, who I've known for 25 years, um, does not read romance novels. I think I've talked about this on the, I think recently I told a story about how she is now reading. She, after Derek Craven Day. Yes. She was like, <laughs> I am going to read about this Be a supportive dummy. friend and I'm going to read this book. So fine. So she has only ever read my books and now she's read since this morning. So about a week ago, she was like, I'm reading Derek Craven. And then her Kindle died oh. at page 300 and something. Oh. And I was like, what? And she, in the way that people who do not read romance novels, I guess, would respond, was like, well, I'll finish it when I, you know, finish it. <laughs> I, I would literally be like, just read me the end. <laughs> and so I did what any decent friend would do. And I sent her True. a hard copy of Dreaming of You so that she could finish the book. Okay, why didn't you just put the Kindle app on her phone? It's okay. I don't need to know. You Sorry. know what, Jen? You know. I have seven different reading apps on my phone. I'm so oh, afraid of one of there, them dying. This would never happen to me. Like, this, you and I, but we are, you know. We're di- I get it. We're different. We're like doomsday readers. The, the kids. You know, some people have, like, bunkers filled with cheese and, like. <laughs> I'm a doomsday prepper with romance novels. It's so Can true. Beans. The kids at school the other day joked about taking my phone. And I was like, what are you going to find? Seven different reading apps and then a couple other, uh, like, listening to books apps. And then yeah. the podcast about books apps. I was like, ooh. <laughs> what an exciting phone. Y'all. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> so I sent her the hard copy. So she finished it. And, I mean, I'll put a, we'll put a screenshot of the text thread. But she appreciated it. Which is what is important. She was like, when he says, I love you in the ashes of his, like, empire. And I was like, I know! Anyway. Anyway, but this is not... So she has twin girls who are seven years old. Bless. Oh, bless. Twins. Yikes. Bless all of you who have twins. So she has twin girls. And so her daughters um, came down and they were playing library. And so they were all book-talking the book that they were reading. Right. This is so pure. I love this. This is what we do. We play library every day, every week. (laughs) Fine. I'm not even mad. So um, anyway, so they're all sitting around and they're all book talking their books and they get to Megan and they say, Mom, what's your book about? And she (laughs) says, well, it's about a woman named Sarah and their eyes get big. (laughs) And one of them says, is it about auntie? I'm Auntie. Of course. Hello. Hello, everyone. I'm Auntie. I'll be playing the role of Auntie here. <laughs> Is it about Auntie? And <laughs> Megan goes, no, no. And then they're like, well, what does she do? And Megan goes, well, she's a writer. <laughs> and they were like, are you kidding me? And now they're like, mm, so it's about Auntie. And she's like, no, no, it's not about Auntie. And they were like, well, it looks like the kind of book that Auntie writes. So you know, do they get married at the end? And Megan says, yes, in fact, they do. And she said, and her daughter says, well, what's, what's the hero's name? Like what, well, she didn't say hero, but like, what's the boy's name in the book? And Megan says, Derek. And she says, of course it is Sarah and Derek. Yes. 
worry so much. I'm just like one of us. Sarah and Derek. And I was like, I never even put together that when you say Sarah and Derek all together, it sounds like Sarah and Eric. But this brilliant seven-year-old who is like a better reader than I am, like, I will move aside and she will be the new host of Faded Mates. Playing library. (laughs) We'll play library with you. But obviously, but she put it all together. She was like, obviously, this is Auntie's favorite book because it is about Auntie and Uncle Eric. Sarah and Derek. (laughs) Sarah and Derek. Oh, my God. I love it so much. Can I just tell you, I legitimately played library a lot when I was a kid, including I was real concerned about my Sweet Valley High Kelly-gnosis. I was really concerned about, like, the quality of my sweet, the spines of my Sweet Valley High books and would, like, put little pieces of tape around the edges like they did at the library. Oh, to protect them. Yes. Because those Sweet Valley High books were not well bound. Oh, God, no. I mean, yeah. Kelly also knows this. I would get mad if she, like, cracked the spine. When I was a you, fucking Are you still asshole. like that? No, not at all. Now I'm just like, their paper, I'm it's fine. a very brutal reader. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm really I mean, hurt. Yeah. Wet, tea stains. Sure. Now I'm just like. Cracked spines. It's paper. Pages, it can be. And also, you know what really, there are two things I think really got me past the hump of feeling like my books were pure items, <clears throat> which is. One, when you move a lot, books are really heavy. Uh And you have to really be like, okay, this box of books is going to cost me $100 to move. And so I have gotten rid of thousands. And now I'm like pretty ruthlessly. I call a lot. Because realistically, in my whole entire life of getting rid of books, I've only rebought a couple. You know what I mean? Where I'm just like, it's fine. I can borrow it from the library, read it again in a different way. And also going to book events as both a teacher and a a romance person. I'm like, they're paper. It's okay. So yeah, I am over it. I apologize. Kelly and I did do something really fun today though. Can I tell you about this? Yeah. We together bought this box from an, a, a place called Let's Make Art. Cause I was like, we're bored and we need new things one year into this year quarantine. And it's like watercolors. Nice. And so today, this afternoon, we watched the watercolor video and we did some watercoloring together and it was really fun look at you i know and i i have to say as you all know because kelly you've seen her design work kelly is an actual artist and i am not at all so i you know like she makes oh the romance landia sticker of the month club is like new right she does all of our design work so she i think has a higher threshold for her own abilities and i'm like i'm a terrible artist and have been my entire life but i had a lot of fun doing it so anyway, it was really, really fun. Let's make nice. art. Let's go make let's make art. I'll put a link in show notes. It was fabulous. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it was super fun. Anyway, welcome everyone to Faded Mates. Welcome. I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels. This week I'm writing a romance novel, which is why we're doing this and not reading Mary Balog's really book. Now, Eric wanted me to pause and say this. Okay. Because <laughs> We have a reader Mm -hmm. on Twitter made sure that we understood that it is not... I've been pronouncing Mary Balog's name wrong forever. A lifetime. My lifetime. (laughs) It is pronounced Balog. There is a video we will link to in show notes. Yeah. In fact, I think I linked to it last week in show notes, too, because I did show notes because you had your second dose of the vaccine. I did. Hey! 
big did. celebration. I know. I'm still a little and tired. You felt like kind of crappy. I felt like so, hot shit on a cracker for 36 solid hours, but I'm so better now. I formatted show notes last week like a prince. You did. <laughs> what a champ. <laughs> Yeah, I did some of them and then texted these guys and was like, look, I do it. I can. Anyway, <laughs> so I linked to the I linked to the Mary Balog pronunciation where she pronounces her own name. Perfect. And I want to publicly apologize to both Mary Balog and all of the readers who heard the my mispronunciation like nails on a chalkboard. We are all learning. And you know what? If we ever pronounce any author's name wrong, please let us know. We are happy to correct the public I would record. I like to know how sure. to pronounce all your names. Yeah. If I know people, I actually have texted people or, like, sent them direct messages on Twitter and been like, we're going to say your name. How do we say it? Because I, I do think it's important. But, yeah, if we get it wrong, God, please let us know. We're happy to. Yes. I try to do this before I, like, host panels, too. And oh, yeah. Well... Little romances graduating from high school, and we literally just got an email that asked us to send in a like phonetic, phonetic. pronunciation of his name. And I was Lil, <laughs> Lil Romance. Romance. That's <laughs> not what I did, but that it was would funny. be amazing. Oh my god, I know. As the middle name, yes. <laughs> In, in, in quotation marks. They made it very clear that they were only going to be dealing with people's legal names, I think, mm. to head off just such nonsense. Yeah. That's fair. Fair. Anyway, I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels. I read romance novels. I'm on Deadline, which is why we're doing this. And I'm here with my... Yes, Jennifer Prokop. I am a romance reader and critic and a um, person who collects information on Google Forms. So... <laughs> What we did this week is in I'm it up right now. Yeah, we were fooling around on the text messaging as one does. And Jen was gently suggesting. Yes, I was kind of like, hey, we were not going to actually do a matter of class this week. I was I, I felt it in the knew. ether. Let's and I was honest. like, <laughs> yes, they they knew. And so that's a real thing. That I'll is be doing real. great for writing. And you will be the book will be turned in. Oh my god. And so it's going to happen. So I, we were talking about like something else that came up that Eric didn't know. And we'll save it for the end. And then Sarah was like, it would be really fun to ask people like, what are the questions that they really have? Right. So we have a bunch of questions and I don't know that we'll even get to them all because there's over 30. last week's episode was us sort of talking about, we didn't, we thought last week's episode, we weren't sure how people feel about last week's episode because we sort of felt like, oh, are we kind of preaching to the choir a little Mm -hmm. bit here? Everybody will know what we're talking about, but people seem to be really into it. And um, we saw that a few of you who are librarians and booksellers were sharing it for your communities of people who might not know so much about romance. Um, And so thank you for that. And we're glad that you found our ramblings interesting. And now we have 300 questions. No, no, it's 30. It's 30. Oh, okay. It's 30. It's 40. Did you? It's 40. It's 40. All right. Okay. I literally just sent a last call. (laughs) All right. On the Twitter. And it, it got a little bit bigger. I was like, we're not doing 300 questions. We okay. we really are not. It's fine. But there are some rec requests, too. I said no prom- No. I was worried we wouldn't no get promises. enough questions. I was like, no. So if we think they're interesting, we'll do it. Or we can save them for later. Okay. I'm going to let you run, drive this train. Since you seem to be put together. I try. 
Yeah, the DJ. Okay. <laughs> what I'm going to do is, and Sarah, you can do the same thing. Is we can each just pick some questions, and yes. then we can um, we can address it. So I'm going to start with one that's like a softball because we actually have a plan for it. So Claire in Texas wants to know why do we think fantasy romance isn't as big as a subgenre as sci-fi or PNR? And the answer to that will be coming in an episode where we talk to Zoraida Cordova. Who knows everything there is to know about fantasy. Who knows everything there is to know fantasy. So I will, I'm going to put a pin in this, but tell Claire that we have a whole episode on this topic coming probably in May. Yeah. And I do want to also say um, that fantasy, it may not seem like it's very big in romance, but I do want to just say the name Sarah J. Moss because yeah. her book came out two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And it was the number one book in the United States that week, and it sold more than 100,000 print copies in one week. Wow. So, like, we say, oh, there isn't much, but clearly there's a demand for it. So we're going to try and get into it with with Sarita. Sarita. Yeah. So I would say some of these, it's going to be fun because we're going to be able to talk about them. Like, it's coming. Yep. Okay. Here is a really fun question. Um... That I think will be interesting because Sarah knows so much about publishing. So how and oh, this is from Chelsea in Arizona. How and when did series become a thing? Have romance readers always demanded secondary characters get their own books? Or did that come about at a certain point? And I just think that's a really fun, interesting question. That's a really good question, too. I mean, I would think I can I think going way, way back. It was families. We've talked, we talked about families, this on our family right. episode. So I do think that there's a difference between series as like connected characters mm-hmm. who like kind of loosely you sort of see dance by at a ball. And right. I'm thinking like that's what I'm thinking about when I think about the Montgomerys or the Westmorelands, either McNaught or Brenda Jackson's, mm-hmm. um, or early Beverly Jenkins, early Julie Garwoods, where like the con- the things were connected, but they weren't essentially inter they weren't interconnected in a substantive way. Right. Versus now where I think we're seeing more and more, certainly my books, but other books too, where like the series are really tightly yeah. interwoven. Like if you read the series in order, it will give you more va- right. value as a reader. And I have to assume that that's a little bit paranormal. I think there's a couple other things I would add. Mm. One is I think there's a difference in the kind of, and this is because I know you, Sarah, you can talk a little bit more about this. When you are conceiving a series now, right, like you're building that whole world like in into it, right? I mean, I, that's my impression as opposed to like this couple went flying by. That's an interesting character I can pull out and give their own book. Mm-hmm. So I do think it makes sense that it would start in paranormal because you build the world so much in a paranormal that it makes sense that you would want to get as much, like squeeze as much story as you can out of that world. Yep. And in paranormal, things happen like the rule, the world building is about rules for the paranormal creatures and about this actually interestingly goes back to the fantasy question, which we will talk more about with Zoraida. But suddenly you're really working with a 
in order for you to really invest in the series, you have to have invested in the whole world. And so it it's valuable for both you as a reader and authors in terms of marketing. But also, I would say, readers drive this train. Yeah. Which is now apparently my favorite thing to say, driving trains. But readers do drive this train, right? Like where you write a book and then readers call you or call you. They don't call you. <laughs> but readers email you or t- or tweet at you or Facebook you and they say, oh, when are we getting this book or when are we getting that book? And then as a writer, many of us end up saying like, oh, well, when are we getting that book? But it's always, I think now it's so baked into romance that any ancillary character in a book could, could potentially be. be a future book that readers just like glom onto them. And say, like, oh, who's that person's next, right? Like that, yeah. or, you know, this person's coming. And I can tell that because if you read in Kindle, you can see popular highlights. Oh, I hate that feature. That's fascinating. I know, but, but you yeah. can turn on. I don't hate that feature as a writer. Fascinating. You can sure. turn on popular hi- highlights and see. And oftentimes in my books, the things that get underlined as highlights are references to side characters. Interesting. So As you can tell. someone is like, oh, this person is going to be interesting. You're doing market research on your own book. I am. Why wouldn't I? I'm a businesswoman. Obviously. <laughs> but that's like, I hadn't even thought about that. I am an asshole. I'm like, I don't really care what anyone else thinks about me except me the first also, time I read a book. Yeah. The other thing that people highlight are the real dirty bits. You of course they do. Are super pervy. Um, <laughs> bless. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> no kink shaming. I'm just saying, if you want to find the dirty bits fast, turn on a popular highlights and just. Well, I just use swipe through. That's you just search for thrust. I just search for thrust. I do, but I also <laughs> read really fast. It's never a problem. It's fine. Uh, yeah. I, so I also think though, like, okay. So I do want to talk a little bit historically, which is Sarah and I both came grew up at a time when, like, 80s category romance was being a thing, like, reading 80s category romance. Mm-hmm. And I do think that category romance really cemented in the idea of, like, a trilogy. And I explicitly remember, like, when Love Swept, for example, started packaging, like, authors together to write, like, a family of characters, like the Delaney's, for example, and then, like, all I... all those um, Elizabeth Lowell books with yes, state names? Yes, exactly. Nevada and uh-huh. Utah and Tennessee. And-, and it started with families, but I, I do think that category... So this has been around for a long time, and I think it really originated in category. Now, I'm going to tell you something else, which is I do wonder about its... The future of it, maybe we're going to cut this part. I, I think it's a real hard sell in trade paperback pricing because it's one thing to get a series of books for $15 if they're five bucks each. But when each of those books is $15, you're talking about a $45 series for three books. I do think, um, I know that there are trade series, but I do think standalone trade, like what Kate does. That's interesting because I don't think. I don't know if I agree with that only because maybe I think it's length is also a piece of this, right? I don't know. That's a really good question because it, 
I mean, if you think about a big meaty historical, right? Mm-hmm. Like a McLean historical runs you nine to a hundred thousand words. Yeah. Which is trade paper length, longer than many trade paper lengths. The book is a standalone, right? Like it it can exist on its own, but mm-hmm. also there are I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, and I like look, I get it. I think and maybe, it'll be interesting. In that publishers are more interested in standalones or packaging purposes. Although when you think about Jen DeLuca, say, with her um what's it, a Renaissance Fair series, that's all connected. Yeah, yeah and well, okay, I would say Are those Alicia Rye books connected? Kind of, yeah. Like the three, they're friends, the but they're not dance through. It's back yes. to that dance through. Maybe and that's I, what you're saying. I do think that's what I'm saying because I'm going to tell you right now. It is really. I, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Like, I feel like I basically am in the lucky position of having more or less unlimited. I spend what I want on books, but a trade series is a real. It's, it is, it's expensive. I, it's expensive. It's, expensive. it's a big investment. It's a big and investment. And I, and I often, I'm like, okay, that first book was okay. So if the first book is not a hit it out of the park, I'm, I'm done. So I do feel like maybe the barrier to the series is a lot higher in trade. So I would say, yeah, that would be as a pure reader. I'm going to tell you that's right interesting. now, if book yeah, number one is not a home run, great book, I am, I'm done. Well, you should start a new Google form and start yeah. keeping track. <laughs> you know I keep track. Keep you know, track. here's the thing. I spent two hours on the phone today with my agent. Who yeah. Is brilliant and always. Hello. I hope you're watching. I hope you're listening. <laughs> um, and we were talking just, I mean, we had, we have, you know, quarterly meetings and whatever. And, and they're usually, they start with me having like a bullet points list and then they end with an hour and a half later. We've just gossiped for an hour and a half. Fine. Which is great. And talked about the industry and whatever. And I think like right now, look, there's a lot going on in the industry. This is not related yes. to the question, but the, this idea of like packaging and what, there's a question about illustrated covers that maybe mm-hmm. we should tackle next. But, um, the, you know, there's, you know, what do the covers look like and what is the trim size? Like, what is the size and shape of the book that you are holding? What, um, are, uh, what is the price point of the book? How does the price point differ in print versus ebook? Like how quickly should people be publishing? Like, what is the, there are so many questions and I feel like, um, we were coming, I feel like if you looked, if you listened to the episodes that we put out before the pandemic began, we were saying like, we are on a precipice, like in 2020, I think I was saying like in 2022, things are going to look different than they do right now. And I believed that in 2019. And I believe it even more now because I think the, the pandemic has taught us all. We don't, I mean, like it looks so different now. Publishing as a business looks so different now. Yeah. Because of things like, Who's shopping in stores and what they're spending money on and what the printers can print Mm -hmm. in time for the publication date. I mean, like, we forget as readers and also writers, right? Yeah. I like to think of myself as being like, I'm very plugged into the way the business works. And I care a lot about how the business of publishing happens. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it's my job. But I forget, too, how absolutely 
how the whole business is really about ultimately like bottom lines. Like yeah. How much it costs to make the book and um, and how to get it, how to convince readers to read it. And that is the key, right? Like it's not just, this isn't, I always say like, oh, it's like cereal, right? But it's not just like cereal because the goal, like they're thinking about, are you more likely to buy something that is trade paperback sized if it has this other cover versus, right? you know, this illustrated cover versus this car- this photographic cover? And I think um, readers and writers often spend a lot of time going like, well, it's about what's inside. Don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. Except that's not how it really works. Yeah. So let's go. There actually are. This is like a good segue. There's a couple of, of questions that are actually kind of like like kind of publishing questions, right? So one is, um, I'm st- okay, this is Cindy in Columbus. I'm still fairly new to the genre. I'd be interested in hearing you, us, talk about the difference between mass market and the newer trade paperback romances. So, like, maybe we could just do a quick primer on, like, those trim sizes. Yep. And Well, we and- have a picture now. Yeah, we do. I'll put okay. it. Okay. So mass market is the small size. So if you read, Cindy, if you read, like, my books in paperback or you read Harlequin category, like Desires or Presents books, that size, that sort of short, I wish I knew the the exact measurements, but I don't. We'll put them all in show notes. Yes. But, like, we'll put a picture right now on your podcast player. This will be the picture. Um, So there's that size, mass market, and that has been around since... Oh, my God. The beginning of romance, right? Like, the beginning of time, it feels like. Yeah, it was pulp fiction. They originally were designed to be able to fit. They were narrow. They were thin. The pulp, mm-hmm. the true pulps yeah. were thin. And, you know, the legend that I always heard, or the reason I always heard, was that they, they fit, in your, fit in your back pocket. Um, and then when uh, single title romances, so like the thicker romances, started to come into into being and come into popularity, the books got thicker, but they stayed that small size because they would fit into a woman's purse. Mm-hmm. And this was literally about gendered sale, like point of sale. Um, now, of course, mass market exists and... There's also the larger trim size, the trade trim size, which is many of these illustrated covers, like right. we talk about the kiss know, quotient or you have me at Ola or right. um, Rosie Dannon's The Roommate or, you know, often these are contemporaries, although um, not as much anymore. We've had a couple yeah, of historicals creep Dun- into there. Evie Dunmore is published in trade. Um, so that's the kind of larger size paperback that you that you would see on the front table at your bookstore um beach read these are often books this is the tr- this is paperback the way that 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 readers often know this trim size is this is the second format of the hardcover meaning it can't like that book came out in hardcover that like john grisham book came out in hardcover and then next year it comes out in paperback um and it comes out in trade now there is a third size, and it's right. called Mass Max, and you are <laughs> about to see a lot more of them. Right. Um, the publishing, the industry is moving toward this middle size called Mass Max, 
And some of it is like a literal, like the two mass market paperback producers merged. And there's literally like less ability to produce it, right? So they're moving. more expensive to produce this smaller. Which is ironic, right? Yeah. Um, wait, but is Cindy asking why one and not the other? I think she's just, like, talk about it in general. So, so but, and generally, I mean, like, mass markets are cheaper to produce. You can tell because you can actually literally feel it. The paper is The paper cheaper. is different. Right. Um, and trade paperbacks are bigger and usually have a lusher paper, usually. Yeah. And they can be sold for more money. Well, and here's, I would say, a couple other things is, so, the... Even so, some people, of course, are like, "Look, I just read on my Kindle. I don't care." But it does matter for the price point, right? So, even if you're just reading on your Kindle, if it was released in trade, your price point on your Kindle is going to be between ten and twelve dollars. If it's released in, you know, mass market, it's going to be between probably five and eight. And if it's mass max, we're not really sure yet. This is kind of a new format. Between seven and ten is my guess. So even if it doesn't matter to you, it will matter in terms of price. The other thing you should know is it matters to bookstores because it, and this is, I think, what people don't about pulping, pulping, right? This is what people don't know, which is if you, if your local bookstore buys a bunch of trade paperbacks that they cannot sell, they the way it works with the and Sarah, you might have to like make sure I'm getting this right. My understanding is your bookstore can essentially send those books back. They are remaindered, which means they're unsaleable and it is now goes back to the publisher. But that's not true of every trim size, right? No, mass market paperbacks do not get remainder. They do not get yeah. Returned to the publisher. So they just get destroyed. This is like the worst. This is the you worst. Guys, I'm about to hurt some of you with this story. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sorry. What happens is publisher, book, um, bookstores, when they decide they are through carrying mass markets, which is often not a very long amount of time because romance and thrillers in mass market trim size tend to move very quickly. They turn out the books turn over very quickly. There are say 25 that come out this month and another 25 that come out th- right. next month. And there just isn't enough shelf space. Right. Um, so when house, when bookstores realize that they don't have enough space for all of these mass markets, instead of packing them into a box, mailing them back to the publisher to go back into the warehouse or whatever happened, I don't know what happens to them. They get sent to book outlet, everybody. Like, I don't don't know about operations. Yeah. I, they just rip the cover Mm -hmm. off the book and throw it out. This, the famous first bag of books I found was a remainder, a bag of remainder books. And they throw it out and it's awful. I mean, like, it's, (laughs) it's an awful thing. Like it, because, I mean, they're not supposed to do anything with it. Like they are not supposed to throw it. They're not supposed to, like... Give them away. um, Right. They're trash. They're recycled. and there's literally... I'm going to read to you. On the front page, if you open a mass market paperback, any mass market paperback that you have probably says something like this, but this one says, if you purchase this book without a cover, you should be aware that this book is stolen property. Yeah. It was reported as unsold and destroyed to the publisher, and neither the author nor publisher has received any payment for this stripped book. 
So, um, and the reality is, is that they're supposed to go into the garbage can. Um, and as an author who does not get paid for stripped books, um, I hate that because what I would like to see is them be donated to libraries that have low budgets or homeless shelters or, you know, community centers in, you know, communities that have, that are in need or I don't know, like, yeah. At this point, if the book is going to be thrown out, like give it to somebody who can't afford to read it. Right. Any other way. Um anyway, that's brutal and it hurts. And the last time we talked about it, some booksellers like came into our thread and like explained like how terrible it is and how of they course. feel terrible doing it. So, um I don't blame booksellers at all. Like it's just a terrible thing that sure. happens to mass market. So, there's value in you know, in a larger format that, you know, maybe gets taken better care of. But at the same time, that mass market cost, the price point, the size, I, I'm sad that we are, wa- I think, I think as a, as an industry, we are watching kind of the death of the mass market right now. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing about that is that, um, it is a format that has always, I feel, been like the most democratic. Is that right. an appropriate yeah. way of saying it? Sure. Not only for its price, but for where it's been located, right? Like a lot of people grew up, you know, like I'm sure still now. I mean, there are not bookstores in every town in America or every mall in America anymore. And so, you know, if you are buying bookstores at your grocery, st- books at your grocery store or your, right? I mean, Costco or whatever, like that's where these books are located. So yeah, it actually is related to another question we have. Did do we cover that? Do you think? I don't know. If that's like, I think so. I mean, yeah, yeah I think right. so. Which is how do romance readers afford to buy so many books? Well, this is yeah. why I know. I'm like, <laughs> well, you should be a vigilant user of your I mean, local library. Technically, we can't. Most yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, and I'm lucky enough that I have access to advanced reading copies, right? I mean, I read a lot of books because I, for essentially before they come out, using NetGalley or Edelweiss, but that's not really available to most people. So, you know, this is a huge deal. So Kindle Unlimited or your library, right? And I I think a lot actually about how Kindle Unlimited says like you can read this book for free, but you're not really reading it for free. You're reading no, it as part of your marketing. Ten dollars a month. Ten dollars a month. Right. And you know I think um, it, it it. But this is also why like that push pull of um, trade romance, right? If we're talking about people who only can find. I mean, especially now, right? A limited amount of money per month to spend on books, right? Knowing that you could get, you know, two trade paperbacks are $30 versus, you know, Kindle Unlimited and four mass market paperbacks or, you know, and so I think this is everyone in romance, high volume romance readers, are constantly trying to figure out a way to make it more affordable. So let me talk about a couple ways you could do that after Sarah says what she's going to (laughs) say. I mean, I was just, I actually just rolled away from you to look at some of my like old romances, like the one, the first editions that I have from the 80s and 90s. And I mean, a, 
a thick, like single title mass market was 450 then. And the categories from from um oh yeah, a couple bucks from were like 299, right? Which interestingly isn't that far off what what people are paying in ebook now for the race. Right. I mean, it's that the single title at 450 is cheap, but um so but you know, this goes back to what I was saying before about this trim size being mass market being more democratic, right? Like romance readers are voracious. We know that. We know that they read, you know, at an an, an enormous rate, right. book a day in many cases. Yeah. Um, and the number has always been, you know, kind of thrown around 10 to 12 books a month, which is way more than oh, readers yeah. in other genres read. That said, clearly things are changing because, you know, remember Netflix and Hulu and Amazon TV and, right. you know, TV on demand. None of that existed like 10 or 12 years ago. Like five years ago. I mean, I mean right? It's- yeah. So we're competing. Books are competing with just constant whatever you want to watch or binge or like see. Like we're competing with media of all kinds now. And so fewer people, I think, are reading as voraciously. The sad thing is, is that romance readers, I, our people, the yeah. people who are probably listening to this podcast, are still reading as voraciously as they have ever done. Yeah. And so the pricing, and they're not, we know, right? I mean, this is me getting a little bit political, but like, it's not like minimum wage is raised in the last right. 20 nope. years. No. So- they can't afford to be paying exponentially larger amounts right. for for, books. for entertainment. And right. so they need the tricks. So give them the tricks, Jen. Okay. So here are the tricks, everybody. Number one is it is cheaper to read in E than it is to read in paper. Assuming some, you're going to do some buying. Obviously, the most important thing to do is figure out how to use your local libraries, Libby and Hoopla. Hoop, they're two different reading apps. I'm not going to talk about it. I will put some things in show notes if you don't need them. Hoopla is more expensive for your library, so not every library system has it. But OverDrive, which is Libby, they do. And you should just borrow books from your library. That's what you should do. I do it a lot. Okay. You should also know that you don't need a freestanding reading device. Like, if you're like, I can't afford a Kindle, that's fine. You can read on your phone using the Kindle or Kobo or Nook app. And then sign up for BookBub which is a daily email. That's a good piece of advice. Yes. So there's a daily email that you will get that will say like, hey, here's what's on sale today. And here's the thing. You can really overwhelm your Kindle really fast. (laughs) But, you know, what I do is I'm just like, is this an author I've heard of? Is this a person on my watch list? And if you download two or three books a week using BookBub, they're all under, I don't think BookBub is ever more than $3 a book. They're cheap. They're cheap. Sometimes they're I 99 mean, cents or a dollar, right? Yeah. You guys, this is the way. Yes. Like, if you, BookBub is is great for this. And you can follow your favorite authors. That's right. On BookBub, which is so useful because not only do you find out when they have a new book out, right, which is very useful. If you say, are an, if you're like me, right, you auto, Jen and me, we auto buy Cressley Cole. Yes. We autobuy Lisa Kleypas. Right. So, like, when they have, when either of them have a book out, we said, we, we're there. Pre-ordered, yep. book is coming on the day that it's coming. 
Um, but if, say, Dreaming of You is down priced to $2.99 for Derek Craven Day. Yes. It's probably going to be in the book bub email. Right. And so, oh, that's one I've never read. Sure. But I've had it at $2.99. Right. Now, I'm, I'm saying that only because the first time you get, start getting the BookBub email or you follow the book queen on Twitter, she does a daily oh, Twitter so thread too. of, like, here's what's on sale. The, it's really tempting to download everything that's free, and then you're like, I have all these books I'm never going to really read. So even though they're free, I would say, like, you know, use your best judgment. Like, oh, this looks like something I would like, not just clicking everything that's free. That's a rookie mistake. I will say also KU... Yes. Um, for $10 a month, you know, yeah. you can get into the KU game. And now a lot of houses are putting, publishing houses are putting backlists, like old yes. books into Kindle Unlimited. Yes. Like you can read, I think you can read Tessa Dare's like first series at Avon. Sure. Or sometimes the first book is in KU and then, right, the, the rest of right, the series right. isn't. But, you know, you'll be fine and you can like start at least know what you're getting into. Often first books, that's another good trick. Often first mm-hmm. books in series are downpriced yep. for I, forever. Yeah. I mean, like, I think A Rogue by Any Other Name, which is the first book in my casino series, has been at $2 for, like, three years. Because like, they're like, let us pull you in. The idea is you'll buy that and then be so dazzled by McLean's writing that, Obviously. I mean, clearly. <laughs> all right, I'm going to take, this now is, like, a deep cut because I feel like I talk about it all the time, but every time I do, people are like, how did I not know about this before? If you are on the hunt for newer releases going on sale, as opposed to backlist, yeah. then you should go to something called e. Now, and this also I think only works for Kindle, but e Reader IQ is a website that you can put in, make a watch list for certain titles or for certain authors, and then you get an email if there is a price drop. And you can say, like, how much of a price drop. So, like, if you're like, okay, if this author drops to below $6, it's not going to be on BookBub. It's not enough of a price cut. That's a good product. But it's unreal. And you can also go and look and see if a book has ever gone on sale. So, for example, you're like, okay, uh, this book is five years old, but all of a sudden I'm interested in it. You can look it up and see what its its price has been over the course of its whole life. And then you can know, like, okay, look, this book's never been on sale. Or, oh, it looks like they put this book on sale every four months. I'm going to create a watch list for it. I'll get an email next time it goes down. That's smart. You know, also, you will learn pretty quickly which houses do down pricing and which houses do not. Yeah. For example, uh, our entire first season of the podcast was about Immortals After Dark, a Cressley Cole series. Those books are never never downpriced. No. I mean, so you should get them from the library. Yeah. Right. So um, this is hard, right? But the library library thing is the solution. Yes. Also because in many, many, many library systems, it's different. It's harder for me because I live in New York City. And if there's something, like everybody's requesting books all the time in New York City. But if you live in a small library system and you, there's an author you love or a book you want to read, often you can request it and they have a budget. Like yeah. your library system has a budget to purchase new titles. Right. And many times, I mean, the best thing to do is find out when the end of the fiscal year is. 
And just like throw all your requests in that last yeah, month and find they out. have to spend that money. Sure. And you checking out books from the library is a public good. I did a thread on this because I was curious. And they were like, no, it counts as a circulation statistic. It shows that patrons are using the e-library. Helps do them not, increase their budgets in Yes. Do not hesitate to use the library for its intended purpose, which is getting books into the hands of patrons. So those are my pieces of advice. Um, yeah, you just have to do your research. What romance author would you choose to write your life story and why? Sarah and Derek. <laughs> yeah, hello. Asked and answered. <laughs> yeah, I want Cressley Cole to write mine. My life would get so much more exciting. Hello. That's the thing. That I mean, Lisa would really, would really. Lisa would. Like, add drama and sweeping romance to my life, which is not the way it works. Cressley right would add fistfights. It'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Cressley would add, like, lots of fistfights. But, like, probably the answer is somebody like Kate Claiborne, right? <laughs> like, somebody who just writes a beautiful love story between two people who are very decent. <laughs> or Cressley. Volcano sex. Ugh. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, in the last episode, Sarah mentioned craft books. Yes. Do either of you have recommendations for books on romance writing as a craft? And I do. Okay. Amy in Cincinnati, Ohio. Wait, what do we do? O-H. <laughs> I-O. <laughs> <laughs> We're turning Sarah into an Ohio and it's amazing. Okay. Uh oh. Um wait, maybe Eric, we could put in that um that uh, uh lose yourself lyric that I only recently discovered was in fact Oh there goes gravity. Oh there goes gravity. Craft books. Yes, I do have craft books. We will put some in show notes, more in show notes, but um I highly highly recommend so if you are talking about romance specifically which i think she yes. is yes um gwen, gwen hayes who yes. is also real harper another official selection from the bill harper collection brill harper has a book called romancing the beat yes which is very useful. I don't use it as, I don't use the worksheets, but it's useful in terms of thinking about how a story should be structured and paced, um, particularly with a love story arc. Um, I really, really love, I'm looking at my craft list, my craft shelf right now. I really, really like Save the Cat, which is like an ancient text, but is, and is about screenwriting. But I actually think that romance maps more closely to screenwriting than it does to a lot of other um, writing. I know you're, you know, there will, this will bring more questions shortly for the next time, but I really do. So Save the Cat is very useful. Again, like really focuses on like a three act structure, like how the struck, how the, the work happens there. There's also a book called, uh, The Heroine's Journey by Gail Carriger. So, um, this goes to the, there's like this famous, Joseph Conrad wrote this, this craft book a million years ago called The Hero's Journey. And it's basically like all heroes must like be on their own and like be a loner and the call to action. And we must watch them um, be called to action and then evolve as like a singular hero. Um, Gail has taken that text and flipped it around and created what she refers to as the heroine's journey, although it is not gendered. It's just in order to be a foil to the Conrad. Um, and her argument is that romance is a, is actually a story about um, the building of community, not the isolationism of like a singular character alone on a journey. 
um, in romance community is, is queen, so to speak. So, um, Adriana Herrera and I read that book most yeah. like, during the pandemic and we both just like, it blew our minds and it's really fascinating. She maps it to things like the Marvel movies and other kind of really prominent texts in media and pop culture. So you won't have to have read a thousand romance novels to understand it. It's really remarkable. And I have others, which I will put in show notes, but um, those are good starts. I don't write romance, everybody. So I have those. I have those books, but I don't. Why? Why yeah. would you worry yourself? I, everything worry I've learned about, about everything I've learned about romance, <laughs> I've learned from reading. All right. Next up, we have um, someone didn't put their name for this one. It's a great question. Is it a romance if the hero kidnaps a heroine? Well, ask Saint Vincent. God damn. Yeah, People love him. They're putting they're putting together a whole day for Saint Vincent over at Wicked Wildflowers and uh, Heaving Bosoms. It depends. And he flatly kidnaps. Well, he, does he kidnap her? He, he kidnaps he doesn't. the before. He kidnaps it. Is it a romance if the hero, the hero is a known kidnapper? <laughs> so I'm going to tell you. Can I tell you? I am actually reading a book right now with a known kidnapper. And I think it, it depends on the reason for the kidnapping. And what happens during the kidnapping. And what happens during the kidnapping. can't be like, a rapist. I mean, if he kidnaps her and he's like... Yes. You know, and it's awful. Sure. No. But if he kidnaps her because, you know, say, his childhood home is now part of her dowry. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> then, and then he, like, you know, just, sure. like, kind of gently makes her have an orgasm and then, like, forces her to marry him the next morning. I mean, I'm not saying I've written that exact book, but. Let me tell you something. I have a, I have a theory I'm working on, which is. Kidnapping as a plot works best in historical and and or paranormal. Yes. I think it very is very difficult to do. Although once you do it in you contemporary, it's dark romance. I just think it has a, a different full take. dark romance world. Sure. Though, and that's all romance too. Technically, that Annika Martin book that we love so much, Dark Mafia Prince, is a kidnapping. Yes. So no, I just think it but I think can be. it can be. I think it's harder and less common in straight contemporary for Re- obvious reasons, I think. Yeah. I think if Nisha Sharma were here with us, she would say absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it depends on, I guess in a contemporary, it depends on subgenre, but yeah, of course. Fine. <laughs> we have no problem. Why aren't there more vibrators used? Why do girls always come during missionary? Maybe it's just me, but I thought it was more spot on, if you will, from different angles for us gals. Natalie, yes. who lives in a single family ranch. <laughs> Oh, we're going through some things. Natalie, we love you. Thank you for your question. I agree. Let's normalize sex toys Mm -hmm. on the page. Yeah, and lube on the page. And lube on the page, yes. That's one of the reasons I loved you. You had me at Ola, was lube on the page. Um, I really like Lauren Blakely's Mr. O, which is, no. Nope. No. <laughs> not wrong Mr. answer. I mean, I do like that Mr. O one, but that's not the one. Hang on. Keep going and we'll come back to Lauren Blakely. I think we are seeing it more. Um Tessa Bailey has one coming out this summer where it's called It Happened One Summer. And Piper is the heroine and she tells her sister, like basically, like, he made me come vaginally. And she was like, keep her. I mean, so at least there's some like 
noticing now that that isn't quite usually the way it goes um, and that women get more foreplay. Um, I do think it's pretty common in erotic romance. Elia Winters reviews sex toys for a living. Yeah. And also puts, they're in, I mean, basically every one of her books. You know what else? In Happy Endings, which is coming out from Avon in April, um, there is a woman, she is a sex, she sells sex toys and they use them during sexy times and it's great. And it's a, it's coming out in, I think it is April or May. I'll put it, I'll put, you'll see it in show notes. The name of the, the book is definitely Happy Endings. So I think we are getting there, but I do think, I will be honest, I think they are more in erotic romance than, sadly. Yes, for sure. Then it's like no problem. Yeah. Um, And then, or, yeah, it's usually erotic romance because, or it's a, it's a character who um, owns a sex toy company, say. And so that's part of the story. But I'm with you. I support you in your desire for more sex toys on the page. Also, yes, lube. (laughs) Okay. Also, we did an entire pegging episode, which isn't quite what you're asking for, Natalie, but um, does tackle a number of books, does include a number of books that use pegs. I'm going to say that. I'm going to go with it. Sarah, why are there so many Dukes? Because y'all keep buying them. I know... I know, don't send me letters. (laughs) I know that on Twitter, everyone says there are too many Dukes. But I will tell you, on more than one occasion, I have heard from my publisher, well, we think that book probably would have sold better if he'd been a Duke. Yeah. It's because y'all like them well sure i mean i mean what's not to love he's so here's the thing about the duke he's not what's crazy is dukes sell far better than princes sure because a prince is like real hard to believe you know what it is also it's like dukes seem safer in many ways because you're not like in the public eye all the time like princes have also, princes have a responsibility to the crown or whatever. Ultimately, a prince is going to be a king, right? Here's my other theory as someone who knows absolutely nothing about the British royal family or the aristocracy. Dukes just seem fancy without me having to be too invested in it. Exactly. Right? Like, we've talked about this where Sarah, like, knows so much more, obviously. It's shorthand. And I'm all like, it just means fancy rich guy with money. It's fine. It's shorthand. He's It's the duke, the billionaire, the vampire king. Sure. Like, Heroes should the be quarterback, kids. right? And you know, yeah, the the like fire chief, the you know, whatever detective inspector, like whatever it is, the head, the king of whatever he's king of. Okay, Steve from the middle of nowhere, Ohio, which I think. Gosh, means, I wonder who this. I is. wonder who this is, Steve. Trouble. Okay, I need a terminology clarification. He doesn't. If the current trade paperback cover is illustrated. What do we call old school covers, which were also illustrated, but just more realistically? Here's my theory. I actually have theory. 
We started off, I think, calling these cartoon covers, but I think all of us feel uncomfortable with the word cartoon and its connotation of little kids. It's infantilizing, yeah. Yes. So I think we started to use illustrated to just be, like, more respectful of ourselves and the genre. But, yeah, of course, like, old school covers were also... Painted. But they're photo painted, photorealistically illustrated. So I think the problem is, is we didn't want to use cartoon covers because it felt little kid. And so, yeah, I mean, I just think there's a lack of good art words. Sorry, Steve. I'm a reader. <laughs> Let me ask the people at Go. Let's Go Make Art. Yeah, I don't have an answer. You know, actually, it was really interesting, though. Can I tell you something about Let's Go Make Art? At the beginning, she talked about the difference between abstract and stylized and she was like you know people use them interchangeably but it's not the case abstract means there's like nothing you can recognize and stylized is like you can still tell these are people so I guess I would say you know they're stylized in a way whereas they're realistic paintings but yeah we just don't have enough words sorry for romances written a long time ago, i.e. Jane Austen, do we still consider them contemporary since they are about a time in which they are written? And I would say yes. I believe that Jane Austen wrote contemporaries and Charlotte Bronte wrote a contemporary God. Like, I think that uh, the value, Jen and I have talked about this a lot, it's coming up constantly now because of Bridgerton. Mm-hmm. But historical romance is not historical, right? All It feels like all romance is contemporary. Um, but Jane Austen is especially contemporary because she was literally writing about people who were her contemporaries, like her neighbors and, like, the soldiers who lived in the town um, during a time where there was a war on. I mean, like, there... Like, she makes, we spend a lot of time talking about how Austin, like, it's about romance, like, it's about Darcy and Elizabeth. But there's a lot of commentary on the world in those books. Um, So I think, yes, we should be talking about those books as contemporaries. But, like, I also appreciate that romance doesn't own Jane Austen anymore. Like, Yeah, that's true. She's part of capital L literature. I wish we got to... I wish we got to decide, like, how we consider Austin and Bronte and the others. Um, but also, this goes back to um, the story that historical re- romance authors are telling, the story that paranormal romance authors are telling, sci-fi authors, fantasy authors, um, in romance is not really different than the story the contemporary romance authors are telling. Like, we're telling, we're using a different kind of language to tell a story about now. Yeah, I'm also really fascinated. Like, romance as a genre is, what, like 40 years old? And so I wonder if we are going to have to develop some new language to describe. I mean, you know, but when you pick up a a 1980s contemporary, you're like, this is still a contemporary. But if I wrote a story about the 80s now, would we call it a historical? It's 40 years ago. I don't know. Probably. Woof. I know. I, know, I feel There's old, that TikTok right? going around in YA right now about 80, the 80s being historical and... I mean, yeah, but also, like, would we pick up a historical written in the 80s? I don't know. This is the other thing. Like, I think, and I think this is why this kind of question of, like, what makes a historical is really interesting to me or, like, what, what historicals are doing is really interesting to me. Because if we were interested in historicals as a conceit, right, like, as just sort of 
in what and what I mean by that is if we were interested in historical romance in the same way that we are interested in historical fiction, then we would see historical romance set during World War II, historical romance set during, you know, the 1960s, historical romance set against, you know, whatever era, right? Right. The 1920s, the 19, you know, the and we have seen a few things, right? Like, um, you know, Alyssa Cole's novellas and um, and Emma Berry's space race books, like, and Honey Trap, which I've talked about a lot, right? I just read one called, wait, said in 1995 called Loud is the Way I Love You about a band. That's cool. It is cool. But they're like little popcorn moments. There's a reason why historical romance is not set in these kind of alternative historical periods. And I think that's, I'm I'm not saying I understand what that reason is, and that's not what this episode is about, but um, I think it's fascinating that historical fiction can't get away from World War II, and historical romance does not go near it. Well, yeah. I mean, just doesn't. I'm not going to talk about, like, the one-off, like, the one-off historical romances that are about, like, SS officers and no women in concentration camps. Like that's a separate, like those are gross and they're not romances. But what I'm talking about is like money making historical romance. Conceivably, if we were interested in the, if the genre were interested in like also somehow reading in historical fiction, it would be writing in these eras, right? Like Downton Abbey happened and it's not like Edwardian romance happened at the same time. So I have a theory, and I'm not an author, so it can be bullshit. But here's my theory about, like, okay, so I I read this book, Loud is the Way I Love You. And I think what it was really doing was thinking, like, what would it... So I think if an author is going to choose to do that, I think they have to be really grappling with a thematic question that is best set in that time. So here's what I mean. Like, Loud is the Way I Love You is about a band. And I think that, like, the mid-90s and grunge was really about rock. Yep. Right? And so it makes sense that you are going to then put a put a book in that time because that's a time where that was a question that was, like, being asked and answered. If you are going to ask a question maybe about, like, what does it mean to, like, communicate with each with each other really, okay, fine, put it in the 80s or 90s before cell phones existed. Because then you can really remove and have this be something. So I do think that it makes sense about to think about, like, if thematically you have a question that was at a time in the past 40 years, you can set it then. What I see as being... You know, again, not everyone's going to agree with me. What I see as being a mistake is people who think, I will just make my now characters, like, these throwbacks who think 80s stuff is really cool. And I think that this is, I will be honest with you, often not as interesting as you think. Because I'm, I really think that, like, if you are like, oh, yeah, my character loves playing, I don't know, like, pinball or something. Like, pinball's fun for five minutes if you live now. Pinball is not, like, actually interesting, like, in a big, big, long way to most people, right? And I think that that's kind of one of the things I think people are like, well, I'll just make my now character really steeped in that time because they themselves think it's interesting. And I feel like often that's doesn't work yeah. the way you think. I'm sorry. It's tricky. Characters are hard to write. Characters, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, but it's true. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, uh, yeah. It's. I also think, like, there's, there's a reason why um, those books are so few and far between, and it's largely because the people who are writing them are doing really interesting work in them. Um, and it's not, you know, yeah, I think you're right is the short version of that. I think, um, that your whole point about, um, if you're asking a question, an an interesting question and you're setting it in history, you know, the time period you need to set it in a time period that can align with that question. I can answer that. Which makes sense why there is so much, um, MF romance set in the Regency because as, you know, for the last 40 years, as we have struggled with um, women's, you know, women's rights and women's issues and, you know, all the things that kind of we have been unpacking over the 20th century related to women in America, this is specific to America. Right. It makes sense that we would be putting that we'd be telling the stories in a more strict time period for women, which is I think why people like, um, you know, KJ Charles and E. e. Ottoman and uh, and people who are writing queer romance in you know the Regency, Regency and Victorian are doing such beautiful work because the parallel is there. Like you said, that's really you're right, Jen. Thank you, Sarah. You're always right. Somebody just, somebody tweeted about Jen this week and was like, Jen is amazing. Sarah's fine, but Jen is amazing. And Jen is amazing. And now you've all seen, you all, uh, now I realize you've all figured it out. She's the smart one. <laughs> Maybe that's one of those people that doesn't understand the difference between oh, you're our so voices. Nice. Lolo in California, I think I know who this is, <laughs> would like to know your perfect romance cover. <laughs> okay. Can we talk about this new Helen Huang? Because I'm pretty <gasps> sure that's it. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's my perfect uh, romance cover, too. Okay, so first of all, it's, like, this beautiful couple. He is, she. he's lifting her up, and he has a hand it straight up on her ass. Like the greatest, most romantic movie you've ever seen. The whole background is, like, fireworks going off. So they're illuminated. And I was like, that, my perfect romance cover. I, you know, people are, like, romance covers don't sell books. And I... Maybe they don't. I literally was like, I need I this book on my it. shelf. Hell I yes, like, I did. And I own it. Me too. Well, I need two copies of the Kiss Quotient. I also have it on my Kindle. I'm so sure that would I be do three. Too. Doesn't matter. You're it, welcome, uh, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> that new Helen Huang cover is my perfect romance novel cover. It is amazing. Also, a lady in a big dress, because that never gets old for me. Right? Hey, there's another question. There's a question that's related to that. All right, well, let me do this one really first, and then we'll get to yours, because they're cover-related. Um, this is, why are cover reveals such a big deal in romance, right? And here's what I would say is, it's a way of generating publicity and excitement about an upcoming book. So they follow a pretty strict schedule, right? Like, okay, the book's coming out in, what, three or six months or whatever, and so let's get some buzz going that this book is coming, And so that's one of the weeks, because cover reveals for a lot of us are just on our Kindle 
And they open on the first page of the book, not on the cover. We don't get to see the cover. So we don't get to see the cover. And often it's black and white on your Yeah, thing. right. So I do think cover reveals kind of fill that void of Look, like the cover is the whole ball game. I mean, I know I know we're not supposed to say that, but I will tell you I have had great covers and I've had not great covers and the not great covers do not sell as well as the great covers. And here's how I know that that's the co- that this is not just me alone, right? Yeah, like how right. she knows the cover is the whole ball game. Um but also I will say nobody knows what's inside my book that first week out. Yeah. It's not like it's not like people buying the book in the first week um have are like reading reviews. They're buying the book. They're right. either buying it or not buying it. And good covers sell better. And I mean and and when I say covers are absolutely houses know ex- publishing houses know exactly what sells and does not sell, right? You asked about Dukes you put Duke in a title, that book's going to sell better. My, I remember one time I said to my editor, like, oh, I don't have an, I, I don't have an orange book. Maybe we should do orange. And she was like, no, orange doesn't sell. That doesn't mean orange doesn't sell at all. It just <laughs> right. means like. Compared to. Compared to purple or whatever. And so, um, and I think that that's what's so fascinating. And like graphic designers know this. Like people who are artists and, and designers and design packaging all know this. Mm-hmm. Um, so cover, but cover reveals are really just there. Like your covers, the best shot you have at pre-orders, at building buzz, at making um at making readers talk about it, get excited about it. Um, you are the reveal itself is valuable in a certain sense, in that obviously, like if you're lucky enough to get a place like Entertainment Weekly to reveal your book, your cover, they're gonna add to it. They're gonna it's gonna be the cover, there's gonna be an interview with you about the book or about the series. Um, There's going to be information. It gives you a chance to really, like, talk directly to readers. Um, If it's just sort of like a one-off, like, I'm going to post this cover to my Instagram, the hope is that readers will pass it around and, like, say, oh, my God, this is gorgeous. Everybody look at it. That Helen Hoang Hoang, uh, cover is a perfect example. It came out yesterday or, like, we saw it yesterday. And it was like, boom. This is amazing. I've never seen anything like that cover. I texted it to you and Lauren, and we were all like, holy shit, right? It's the most. And then this morning when I talked to my agent, she was like, that Helen Hoeing cover is unbelievable. I mean, like, across the board, everybody I know in romance was like, this book, this cover is perfect. And um, so I think cover reveals are important that way, but truthfully, Truthfully, I don't think they do anything other than get, like, give everybody a time, a moment to say, today is the day that we're going to talk about the new Helen Hoeing cover or the new McLean cover. Because the other way is, well, you just happen upon it when you get to Amazon or you're looking on Goodreads or, like, you go to my website and there it is. Like, it's just a way to, like, tighten up the coordinated effort. I wouldn't worry if you're out there and you're and you're worried about who's going to do the cover reveal for your book. Don't worry so much about it. What I would do is like 
email it to all your friends. Make sure that you get it to like the readers who you know love it and do it all in a consorted sort of in your newsletter kind of way. And in your newsletter, say, feel free to share this everywhere widely. Yeah. The goal is there's this like marketing adage that like you want, there are seven touch points. Like you want everybody to see your product seven times and that's like on the seventh time, that's when they start to really like remember that they saw it. So the goal is flood, like everybody should be looking at these covers. There are so many ways to do it. Don't despair. I also just think because so few of us get into bookstores anymore, right? It, it's a way to, yeah, it's just Plus a way to have it like be seen. Thumbnail images on your Kindle or on Amazon, like it's so tiny. And often when you make them big, they're out of, they're like not good resolution. It's so hard. All right. Any other good ones? Oh, how about this one? Wait, can we do one more? And this is long, but whatever. One more, and then we got to do P and V. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jen. Yes. Romance feels exclusionary. I know this question made me sad. Like, you can't be a romance reader if you hadn't read the entire back catalogs of two dozen writers. Can you be a casual or sometimes romance reader? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. First, can I just apologize to this person? I'm sorry that we make you feel like this. This is terrible. Do better, everyone. Well, and do better (laughs) us. I mean, obviously, it's a romance novel podcast. We just talk about romance novels. But I hope that it's also clear that Sarah and I also talk about, like, other books we've read or other TV shows we watch or, right? like sad. I don't like this. I be our friend, whoever you are. You didn't leave your name, but we love you. Well, and I would say, you know what? This is, in some ways, I think, like, the the flip side of the trade paperback being too much for the regular romance reader is perhaps this is the perfect market for the casual romance reader, right? Because, like— Well, I think that's the hope, right? Is we want to bring you into the pool. Sure. Beach Read, for example, was a great book. It was a huge read. People loved it. And, you know, it's a way—people are like, okay, I'm going to pick this up and— and, you know, kind of read one of these every once in a while. And so, you know, keeping an eye on what some of those big books are might be just the perfect way to just read a couple every year. I mean, this is why Jasmine Guillory yes. just killed. It's why Helen Hoeing's, yes. like, we just yes. did this. But the Kiss Quotient was not for romance readers. Like, the packaging, I mean, this was a while ago, right? The Hating Game? Yeah, These are classic romances that just blew the doors off and really exploded into, like, normal world. Sure. (laughs) Sure. I mean, I I sit, I use that term, like, specifically, because I appreciate we look like weirdos over here sometimes. Sure. You're like, I read 250 books a year. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, and here's the thing. Romance readers, like, we just want to hear you say what you love. Like I talked about at the beginning of this, my closest friend does not read romance except for my own. And when she texted me and was like, oh my God, (laughs) right? when he says, I love you to her and he like, can't get the words out and he's crying in the ashes of (laughs) of his like destroyed empire. That is my kink. And I was like, welcome. Welcome. It is also my kink. But I also, like, she's not going to read another Lisa Kleypas book. Right. And maybe she is, but not the way we are. But, like, all I want to do is talk about that with you. Let's just talk about that. Exactly. And you know what? Here's the thing, too. There are 
one of the things I think that can really overwhelm people is that sense of like drinking out of a fire hose, right? Like there's so many books, so it feels like really overwhelming. But, you know, I would say to me, like anyone who's like, I really just want to talk about this romance and it's really a romance, like I am there for you, right? Absolutely. So yeah, I think you can absolutely be a casual romance reader. I do think that we, you and I specifically, (laughs) are a little bit intense. (laughs) Sarah. People are like, I really love it when he when he's like in the rubble of his burning building and he missed and he's like crying and he finally is able to say the words I love you. We're like, oh my God, isn't it good? Here, read these 200 other books. Okay, that's like literally our job right now. I'm sorry. Instead of just being like, play it cool. <laughs> I also like that part. You're like, that part was okay, man. You know, if you were interested in, say, other books. We created a whole holiday about it. I could make you a small list. That's true. Instead, I'm like, here's 200 books I love. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. That's so true. But we love you, and we do not want to... You to feel excluded from our world. You know why? Because I feel like there's so many places where the gatekeeping is so high, right? Like, I'm a casual comics reader. I'm a casual thrillers reader. Everything else I do is casual compared to romance. And I don't want to feel like I'm not good enough. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I know we said we were going to do the last one. One more, and then that's it. Where are all the curvy men? Yeah. Um, Why is there so little body diversity in the heroes? And I think the answer is there's actually pretty little body diversity in the heroines, too. Right. Um, It's getting better. Yeah. Because now we have writers who are willing to write, like, lived experiences of people who are not um, perfect specimens as per society's decision. Um, Curvy heroes exist. I feel like we talked about this on a recent episode. The Marie um, Liscombe series, The Champion's Heart. Yeah. I know. I loved that book. He's such a, like, big bear. Listen, I literally want him to hug me. It's fine. I know. I know. Um, Jessica Kane has done it. Mm-hmm. Oh, times. that's true. Those are real dirty, but yeah. Um, I believe that Rebecca Weatherspoon has... Oh, yeah, sure. Plus size hero or two. Um, But there are not. You are right. There are not enough. And um, we are only just, I don't think there are enough curvy heroines. Yeah. So I think curvy heroes are probably coming, but. Yeah. Slowly. I I would say, like, this is really where indie is, you know, and self-published romance are here to save us. (laughs) Wait, this is part of this which is why can't a man just have a nice pretty average size penis oh well why does that have to be huge and veiny and scary and um <laughs> i agree yeah right I, exactly I mean, i'm for that i there was a tiktok going around you know now there's this tiktok this like thing on tiktok where like they play a song and then the screen goes red and they're in silhouette and, like, oh yeah like, I'm right people gyrating in red which uh, by the way um, everyone, if you are planning to do this on TikTok, although TikTok moves so quickly that it's probably over now, um, but I'm I'm an old lady. So, it, but if you're planning to do this, I also read an article saying that like there's a way to strip the filter out, and then people just have a video of you gyrating naked. So, like you know, maybe put be on careful. Clothes, yeah. Like you know, make sure that you're covered up if that's a thing that you care about. If not, good for you. And so we support you, Jen, and I support you. Yes. But there was a TikTok, and it was a man who like, I mean. 
like a baby's arm, like humongous. And I was like, that's too much. It's too much. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And so I think, and as Eric pointed out, he's like, well, this is how, this is why men ended up, like, this is why these men end up doing porn because it's a lot and, you know, a fetish. And um, I would say that there are a lot of very normal-sized penises. Yeah. In fact, I will say also that somebody – I did an event with Tessa Bailey once, and somebody raised their hand, a brave soul in the audience raised their hand and said, could you please show me with your hands how big a penis is in your book? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> <We all> like <laughs> – and Tessa was like – a super champ about it. Um, and I think I said something like, it's as big as you want it to be. There you go. Um, I tried. I don't really do the, like, measurement thing. Yeah. You know. I s- see fewer of those now. I do think there's fewer of them. I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is we do talk and unpack a lot the way that, like, women in romance are, are portrayed. I think as we have a more diverse group of people writing romance, I literally mean that in the way I mean it, diverse. Like, people of all kinds, from all backgrounds, from all places, we're going to see more. But just in general, too, I will try and find, there's a really interesting link that talks about how, like, toys that are, like, action figures, dolls, right, of of, like, male characters have become, like, more buffed up over time. And this is something that's, like, culturally true, not just in romance novels, right? Like, so, like, G.I. Joe used to just look like a guy, but now G.I. Joe is, like, like ripped with, like, arm cannons. So I do think, like, sort of the way in which, like, hyper-masculinity has been kind of, I don't know, creeping out into the ether, even in, like, toys that we give our children or the, like, cartoon characters are portrayed. Yeah. I think, I do think that I'm seeing less and less kind of focus on size. Yeah. When I'm re when you're reading books about people with penises. Um, but I think that, um, I think you're right about that. And I think also that um, we're seeing more and more, this goes toward curvy heroes, right? But we're seeing more and more body diversity in romance across the board. Yeah. Right? Like, and that's good for the genre. I mean, that's good. It's not just good for the genre. It's good for all, like, it's good for all of publishing for there to be different people in the books. Um, But... This does lead us into our final question. Our PhD level question, which is, what do we mean when we say two Ps and V? And I'm going to tell you a funny story first about the first Mr. Reads Romance and I were watching the movie Bad Moms. I actually went and looked for it, which is, you remember with Kristen Bell and, um, have you ever seen this movie? It's really funny because Mr. Reed's romance is a romantic soul and he like today we watched the last episode of WandaVision and I cried and he just ignored me while I did it it was fine (laughs) (laughs) but in this movie Bad Moms this is the first time we were together watching something where one of the women's one of the women says something about two peas and v and he looked at me and he was like what does that mean and I was like two penises one vagina and you know like a threesome and he was like When we're talking about people with penises and yeah. people with vaginas, right? Like, this is, 
a kink for a lot of people. And we, the reason why this has come up and why I think this question exists yeah. <laughs> on our document yeah. is because we've been talking about, uh, you have been talking about Nikki, Nikki Sloan's, Sloan's The, the Architect. Architect. Which has, so in the past, when we've talked about Menage, we had Katie Robert on to talk about mm-hmm. Menage. Yep. Um, and polyamorous relationships, we've talked a lot about. We uh, like Menage County Hannah. So we talked mm-hmm. about Elia Winters, right? Um, so when we, when we've done this before, we've talked about two P's and V. Yeah. And we have not gotten to the bottom of what we mean by that. And Eric is confused, too. So we, there's a famous text thread that ended up on our Instagram account that says, where, te- where Eric asks us, Are, is this simultaneous or consecutive? <laughs> And then whether or not it matters related to the music choices. So, you know, whatever. Welcome to our text. Yeah. For many, most of the time, I think when we're talking about it, we're talking about it consecutively. Like, as I referred to it yesterday with him, one P is there and the other P is waiting its turn. Sure. This is not the case in the architect. No. Also, oh, wait, also... Two Ps in two places can also be a, be a thing. We've seen that in many books. So, cool. One P and V and one P and A or one P and M? I'm glad we, I'm glad we saved this for the end. This is really a great place for us to end. Yeah, sorry. Really going to make us, you know, there's this adage in romance that your first line sells your book and your last line sells your next book. And I feel like we're not exactly selling the next book, but you know that's what? okay. Eric is going to... Eric's going to help us make it less gross, I guess. Sure. I don't know. Speaking of tightening it all up, in the architect. We are actually talking about two two P's P's in one V. Simultaneously in one V. I have, in a romance, only read this one other time in a book by Kara McKenna. And I have read a lot of fucking romances, everybody. I'm sure I have ever read it. So this was two times for me. In another romance. I mean, I'm sure, but I'm sure it exists. I'm sure it's like. Of course. I mean, yeah, I mean of course. Like, we're not, and we're not criticizing this in any way. No, no, no body shaming. I'm just it's saying it's unusual. Notable thing, it's notable enough when it comes up. It's like that time that Jen, um, the other Jen. Jen Porter. Jen Porter read the book with the dildo on the motorcycle. Sure. The specially made motorcycle seat book. I just feel like that would, yeah. Whatever. Point is, it was notable. And so sometimes when things are notable, we bring them up. Yes. Literally two P's and V's, right? We are, ordinarily, we're referring to a menage situation where two people in the menage have penises and one person in the menage has a vagina. In this particular case. In this particular case, it is. Literally. Two people at the same time, in the one. Listen, you guys, it was a great book. It was real hot. I mean, I will say I read that full book. Of course you did. pleasure. Yes. This, I think, a great way to end is, why do we love things about romance novels we would never love in real life? Well, that because that's how fiction works. I love yeah. watching The Avengers. I would never want to be blowing up people or living in a town with superheroes. Right? This goes back to, I think it was, was it last episode when we talked about Dr. Jennifer Lynn Barnes? Yes. Um, And her six, I'm going to pull them up. 
We're going to read them okay. because now it's like two weeks in a row, I feel like. Yes, yeah, so we mentioned them. Well, and I would so while Sarah's looking for that, here's what I would say is the greatest thing about storytelling of any kind, it does not matter the medium, it does not matter the genre, is getting, being able to experience a life that isn't yours. And a lot of times that is more extreme rather than less, right? My life is already so boring. And so to experience love again a day after day or a first kiss or and I mean I you guys I'm such a scaredy cat but like I can watch an action movie and I can like ski down a slope with a gun in my hand I, I mean this is storytelling this is why we tell this is one of the most human activities there is I think yep so last episode I talked about Dr. Jennifer, Jennifer Lynn Barnes who's in Oklahoma and her work is on um, fiction and the brain like and, and she's particularly interested in what makes a bestseller. Um, she's also a writer. We'll put some of her books in show notes. Okay. Um, but she writes YA, and so she she's really interested in, like, what makes a bestseller from the perspective, from cognitive, like, cognitively, what makes a bestseller. And so she um, did a bunch of research on bestsellers over the years, and she came up with this list of um, seven, looking at it now, seven, um, no, I'm sorry. She came up with this list of six essentially universal pleasure centers. So the idea is these buttons have been installed kind of in largely in all humans. Obviously, when we say universal, like it's not every Western single, style storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like there are limitations, but the concept is there, right? That like these bestsellers all sort of tickle this particular thing. And the six of them are touch and, like, sex, that kind of, like, physical contact. Right. Intimacy. Yeah. Beauty. And all of these have foils. So, like, beauty and, you know, ugliness or— The ugly duckling you know, or whatever. Right? right. Wealth and poverty or, like, sure. need. Power and the lack thereof. Competition. And then danger. And when she talks about danger, this is what we talked about last year, last last episode. She's talking about safe danger, right? Like this idea, and this goes toward kidnapping. Like, can kidnapping be a romance, right? Like, when we read a dark romance often, like when we read these darker storylines or stories where, like, characters get into trouble or, like, heroes are particularly, like, dangerous, what we're really looking at here is, like, a sense of like playing at danger with while knowing that you're safe. So like scaredy cat Jen brought up, like I too, am. I do not like to watch horror movies, but like, I understand that the pleasure of watching a horror movie is like seeing the horror movie unfold before you, knowing that at the end, you're still going to be on your couch. Yeah. Safe in your bed. Right. Right. So, um, and her argument is like, if you take any, massive bestseller, it's going to have all of this packed into it. So if you take, say, um, The Hunger Games, right? Like, it's competition is right there in the title, right? Mm -hmm. Power, it's all about, like, yep. who has danger in this relationship. Danger, the whole thing is dangerous. Wealth versus, like, the way the districts are structured yep. with, like, immense wealth versus nothing at all. Like, 
the entire back half of that first Hunger Games book is a glow up. Like it's like yeah, she gets a full sure. you know as she beauty. becomes part of the the winner she, of the game. Yeah, right? she experiences like complete makeover. So that's beauty, and then of course it's love triangle. So like there's this like sex touch piece, yeah. and it has it sort of ticks every one of these boxes, and like boom, bestseller. The idea, yeah. and so when you know when she does it, she talks about. Um, that she talks about Hunger Games, she talks about Harry Potter, she talks about Twilight, like these books and and series that you can't like, help but see it all in. And then she's actually given this presentation at RWA, and maybe we can find a link to it. I think you might have to pay to watch it, but we can find a link to it. About, specifically about romance. And that's really interesting, too, because she pulls, like, best-selling romance novels and, like, underscores, like, how they all work. And when you hear her talk, when you look at, say, Cressley Cole's series, you can sort of see, like, oh, it does tick all the boxes. And I, since I've heard Jennifer Lynn Barnes talk about this, I have tried to really think through, like, in my books, like, am I ticking all these boxes in some way? Like, is everything... Because... That's what makes you want to come back. This whole question of like why, why we love story is one that I'm fascinated by, but I do think it's like not only about like experience a life other than your own, which yeah. is of course a huge part of it for most of us, but also always constantly evaluating like who I am in relationship to like a character. Like, could I forgive that? Under what circumstances could I? You're constantly also interrogating yourself. I don't know. I could talk about this all day. I actually do in my day job. (laughs) Anyway. We had a lot of great questions we didn't get to. So, you know. We'll save them up. We will. I promise. Mm -hmm. Next week. Next week. Mary Balog. Balog. A matter of class. I'm excited. Some of you already done the done the reading. See, you already tweeted us that you enjoyed it, and that makes me really happy because Good. I always worry a little bit. I haven't reread this book in a long time. Well, and it's my first time reading Mary Balog. So Have you read you it yet? No. Because I, I mean, was like, I Sarah's on deadline. Texted me. Um, I have it, and it's. I had to get through some things. I had some reviews due. I have some grade reports to write. Fair. It's gonna That's be fine. Allowed. It allowed me to read some things that were just for me, which was also nice. Yeah. I'm reading a historical right now about a guy who kidnaps a woman, and he's also a wolf. It's like a PNR historical. He is also a wolf. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm kind of into it. I'm for it. I'll put it in show notes, because of course I don't remember the title, everybody. I'm sorry to whoever you are. All right. You'll see it when you look at your podcast episode right now. All right. Thank you so much. This is Fate of Mates. We're produced by Eric Mortensen. Uh, you can find us at fateofmates.net. All the music from the episode is in show notes and also uh, on fateofmates.net under music. And uh, you can also find links there to um, stickers and buttons from Best Friend Kelly and to gear from Jordan Denae. And uh, next week, we will be back with a read-along, Mary Ballads, A Matter of Class.